by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. A lot of the young people that self-medicate in New Orleans, a lot of them was Katrina babies and Katrina children. And they saw dead people, floating bodies. They smelled it and nobody did nothing for them. You know, we just think children are gonna be all right. We just put them in a new room, new apartment, new school, new neighborhood, and just figure it is what it is. And so now, 15 years later, we dealing with addiction and violence and mental illness because the post-traumatic stress was never addressed. That's Mia X, recording artist, best-selling author, and professor of music at Loyola University in New Orleans. She is our guest today, and I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Well, one, I am honored. You are my sister. I admire you so much. Love you. This You bring such joy to me um, for who you are. Um, obviously, I knew you as uh, Mia X before Katrina, but then you just became my sister Mia. After. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and so, but for those who, who don't know you, uh, who are tuning in now. Um, who is Mia X? Hmm. I am a mother and a grandmother. She calls me Mimi. Um, but I'm a mother and a grandmother. Um, I'm still a grieving daughter and grandchild. Hmm. But um, you know, I'm a Best-selling author, I'm a chef, I'm a hip-hop artist, I'm an actress, I'm a teacher, and um, I'm a girl from Seven Ward, New Orleans. I love every nook and cranny <laughs> of New Orleans. I love everything about the people. And so if, uh, if people ask someone about me, they usually say, oh, Mia just loves New Orleans and loves the people and likes to spend her time with them as much as possible. Man, let's talk about Seven Ward. You know, I love Seven Ward as well. Uh, um, you know, and one of my dearest friends who was there in the Seventh Ward was on Dershowar Street, Mama D. Yes. And as we know, uh, Mama D passed um, a little while ago. And but she was known for what she did during the storm. And for those who are, who are looking at this, this this marks the 15th year since Hurricane Katrina. Um, what are your thoughts 15 years later? <clears throat> Sometimes it feels like 15 seconds. Sometimes it feels like it happened 15 seconds ago um, because of the loss and the trauma and the broken hearts 
and the broken spirits. Um, when you ride through the communities and you think about a lot of people who were, you know, robbed of their land. Think of the people who lost their lives. 15 years later, there are still markings on houses. Um, you know, Katrina is the, the anniversary of uh, the Katrina levees blowing. Um, it's always bittersweet because it's like a family reunion. Your family come down from Atlanta and Texas, Michigan, Minnesota, and you haven't seen some of them in however many years when we commemorate the storm. So you're happy to see people. You're happy to see them all in the streets, second line, in the way we did pre-Trina. Um, Indeed. But then you think about why, you know, we are there. You think about the death. It brings you back to coming back to the city when the city was opened up and all you could smell is like dead people. Um and seeing some change, but not enough, you know, it still makes people angry. And now, you know, in the midst of uh, thinking about the thousands of people that we lost in Katrina, now we're commemorating this 15th year anniversary while uh, recovering from being almost wiped out by COVID. Mm -hmm. See, same thing that happened in Katrina. Like if, you know, some people will tell you, well, I lost three family members in Katrina or I lost my whole family. And then uh, now we're dealing with COVID and it's the same thing. We're saying, I lost four family members. Oh, I lost six family members. Oh, I know 14 dead people from Katrina. Oh, I know, I mean, uh, COVID, I know 20 dead people. So that's what happened in New Orleans. Um, while we're trying to remind the world what happened during Hurricane Katrina, we are grieving from so many COVID deaths, like so many. And, um, you know, people were trying to figure out, just like with Katrina, what to do with the family members' bodies, because there were, once again, you know, restrictions and limitations on funerals. It's the same way, you know, when Katrina happened, um, you had to wait like months to be able to bury bodies because there weren't many funeral homes up and running. And they were doing the best that they can. And now uh, with the unknown and the uncertainties about COVID, you, you had a lot of funeral homes and cities and states, you know, putting restrictions on services. So um, everybody's in their houses trying to stay sanitized and safe. And you get one phone call after another mm. that someone is dead. So. This 15th um, year commemoration of Katrina is a heavy one because 
Many people who survived Hurricane Katrina, we have lost them to COVID. Mm. So, you know, it's just one of those things where um, we mourn the loss of everyone 15 years ago, but we are currently traumatized by what has happened in the last maybe mm, 120 days of how many people we actually lost, you know, community leaders and musicians and family members and, you know, so uh, this, this 15 year is a heavy one, but the people of New Orleans are resilient. Look here. <laughs> I don't know. They don't really make them like us. <laughs> the people will find laughter, will find song, will find good food, will find a hug in all of this. You know, that's what makes me so proud uh, to be a New Orleanian uh, because we are going to make a way out of no way. Mm. Somehow, we will. Mm. We we will. I know that's right. Listen, I know that's listen. I I can attest to that. Um, what's what's worse in your opinion, or is, is it equal? COVID or Katrina? Hmm. Katrina is worse to me. Uh, There are so many things about uh, Katrina that felt intentional. Mm. What do you mean by that? Um, Like not only was the projection of the hurricane being a a direct hit, but Mm. I feel like the plot to dismantle neighborhoods, the things that happened after Katrina, our people have not recovered from that. Mm-hmm. We, we, we haven't recovered. Um, I think about uh, going to speak to some students uh, in Houston, uh, because when the, when the children from New Orleans came to different states, you know, we talk different, kind of look different. You know, a lot of kids are not used to going to school where all the children have dreads, <laughs> you know. Um, And there were some clashes because some people felt like uh, the citizens just came to these places because they just wanted to come somewhere else and not because their homes were under 20 feet of water. People didn't understand us and we didn't understand them because New Orleans is like a country in the United States. We have so many cultures and traditions and the way we live and do with family is different. Even, you know, like we have days of the week where we literally eat certain things, the whole city, (laughs) you know? So um, I can remember my son being in school and wanting to know when, when was Mardi Gras break Mm. in Dallas. And the teacher's like, what? (laughs) There is no Mardi Gras break. Um, but not because he wanted to be off of school, but because he wanted to see the tribes. Mm. And he wanted to see the social aid and pleasure clubs. And for people who who, who watching and listening, explain that, what you mean by that. They may not understand what the tribes 
social clubs is. The indigenous people of New Orleans used to help slaves run away. Mm -hmm. And because they looked so much alike, mm -hmm. that's what a lot of people don't know, because the slaves and the indigenous people looked so much alike, the tribes were able to dress the slaves up in their costumes. And when they paraded through the city and sang and chant, the slaves were able to do that with them. And so in New Orleans, a lot of slaves and indigenous tribes, they lived together, they married, they became family. And for uh, hundreds of years, the tribes have been strong. They speak their own language. They have their own traditions and they maneuver around the city and we love and respect them. And they teach us about our history, you know, as a people, uh, because we hear so many different things about relationships between indigenous tribes and African people. But what we understand in New Orleans is African people have been traveling for hundreds of thousands of years and have put roots down in several lands in the Americas. And so we, uh, we celebrate the union between the two, the bloodline, the strength, the way they fought, you know, for freedoms together. We celebrate that here in New Orleans. Mm. No, it's, it is powerful to see it. I mean, I, and I would encourage anybody who's never seen or come down from Mardi Gras, they, uh, or just to see the connection yeah. uh, is so, is so powerful. Take, take people back, you know, me, I, I need you. And, and, and I know this is for all of us, all of us who've kind of gone through that or who have continued to fight for all these years, you know, I'm, I'm mindful of, of, cause you know, I, I, you, you, my sister, so I love you. And I don't want to send them to, to trigger, you know, I, cause people, we ask these questions and I know that these are, these things trigger uh, for me <laughs> memories, and for you, it's the same way. You know, different ways. Um, I was actually when Katrina hit. You know, I was in. I actually was in D.C. working on what we do with the hip hop caucus and on the politics. And so for me to see family and friends drowning in the richest country in the world and left there, it wasn't just the fact of the storm, but the fact that they were left behind, as you said. Then the the intentional destruction of coming behind. I guess take folks back to August 28, 29th, 2005, and what it was like. Because I know we have a lot of folks who watch this and they say it was the inconvenient truth, but we also look at it as inconvenient truth was white supremacy. And mm -hmm. inconvenient truth was dismantling our schools and our hospitals. And so for those who, who kind of forgot what it was like. Um, what's your memory 15 years ago, Hurricane Katrina? I remember uh, I was in Dallas. We were out of harm's way, constantly on the phone with family members that was going to head to Dallas. And um, some of them, they, they made it. You know, we ended up having like, it was 29 of us total in the house. Um, but some of them didn't. People who have cars, 
you know, that get them from point A to point B. You know, the car that you say, girl, I can't come way over the bridge because Nelly might not make it. Well, a lot of people have cars like that. You know, a lot of people, um, you know, they, they live in day to day. And a lot of my family members, that was a reality for them. So um, some cars broke down on the bridge. Mm-hmm. And some of my family members, they, they were stuck. So they ended up being in the water. Mm-hmm. Um, had family members that didn't want to leave because there was a storm um, coming it's like right before Katrina, but it didn't do anything. And a lot of people left, you know, and um, like I said, when you are everyday people, everyday people don't have a thousand dollars laying around. And when you have to leave for a storm or some type of uh, disaster, you need money. Wherever you go, you have to check into hotels if you don't have family. You're going to have to eat. You need gas. If you didn't bring enough clothes, you're going to have to go and get more clothes. And uh, when you roughly round all of that up and you have a family, it's probably about $1,000. A lot of people didn't have that. A lot of people don't have it. Hmm. So they got stuck. And... um. You know, New Orleans is a place, we've been through a lot of hurricanes and tropical storms, and we heard our our grandparents and great-grandparents tell us about the the big, bad storms prior to Katrina. And, you know, you just can't even fathom anything like that. You know, you don't even think nothing like that can happen. And then, storm came. Storm passed. On the phone with everybody that weathered the storm. And they're telling you about this wind and the power being out and how hot it was, but how the day is clear. But everybody you spoke to would say something like, they just had like some water bubbling in the street. I don't know where that's coming from. But they thought everything was fine. And then some people say they heard like a bloom, like a big explosion or something. And then the water was coming so fast, those that can make it to the roof or higher ground, thank God they did. But um, a lot of people died. A lot, a lot, a lot of people died. And, um, And life as we knew it in New Orleans changed. You know, whole neighborhoods was gone. Houses was round the house that was on one street was round the corner on another street. Cars on top of houses. People buried in mud and people having to tie people to fences so that they could be identified later. And people stuck on the bridge, feet burning, sun burning them up, old people fainting. Like, you never think something like that would happen. And I don't think there was enough mental help, you know, for the people as they were being rescued, for the children. I think um, a lot of the young people that self-medicate in New Orleans and that are addicted to prescription drugs, um, a lot of them was Katrina babies and Katrina children. And they saw dead people 
floating bodies. They smelled it and nobody did nothing for them as far as addressing how they can deal with letting that stuff inside out. You know, we just think children are going to be all right. We just put them in a new room, new apartment, new school, new neighborhood, and just figure it is what it is. But a lot of stuff wasn't addressed. And so now, 15 years later, we're dealing with addiction and violence and mental illness because the post-traumatic stress was never addressed. And so um, it's triggering. And it is making you just feel like you're in a nightmare when you think about Hurricane Katrina. But Rev, I wonder, do you remember when we went to D.C. and we were outside and I got a chance to speak, something fell on my heart. Mm. And I said, the people up top better change their ways because we ain't seen the last of the rainy days. He said the people up top better change their ways because we ain't seen the last of the rainy days. And everybody is going to get a glass of Katrina water to show you how powerful this was. Mm -hmm. And after that, I remember year after year after year, different places were flood. Mm -hmm. People started being on their roofs and people started having to be rescued in boats. And um, I was like, wow, hopefully they feel just a little bit of what was felt. And hopefully they're not abandoned the way my people was abandoned mm. for five days. And hopefully other citizens don't shoot at them just for trying to get to higher ground. Mm. You know, hopefully. And thank God that didn't happen in other states. But I do think it made America empathize more with what had happened during Katrina, when they when they realized, wow, we can flood too, and we stuck. You know, we are stuck. And so, um, then Katrina, some years later, brought out a little more empathy, and had people saying, like, wow, those people were really stuck. Yes, in the richest country, in the strongest country. Yeah. So uh, now. Here we are. We're coming up on 15 years, man. Yeah. No, no, we here. No, but but we not. I mean, I think your point you're making is such an important piece. Let's talk about the babies a little bit, actually. I know you love the babies. Yes. <laughs> if, if nobody knows, listen, if you watching this or hearing this, let me tell you, my sister love everybody's babies. Yes, I do. <laughs> do. Uh, she do. She, she take them all. She, she don't matter how they come. They can come. Mm -hmm. they, they can come either from the suites or the streets. That's she, right. However they come. Um, yeah. You mentioned that the, the babies in New Orleans saw dead bodies. Yeah. So those babies who were five are now 20. Mm -hmm. Babies who were 10 are now 25. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that they now don't know where to take that anger and they, they self-medicate and they kill yes. each other. Yeah. 
folks who look at that and be like, well, that's just, well, that's just black people killing black people. Why right? this? That's just what it is. Explain to them really how that mental piece and how much we want to help our babies to move forward from in this moment. You know, some of those children were stuck in the house with parents who had died. And those children were in the house with bodies as they began to decompose. A lot of those children saw the metamorphosis of death, bodies swelling. A lot of those kids were in the midst of the gunfire at night. Um, The people that were stuck in the city, it got really violent at night. Um, No lights. Everybody have weapons. People trying to get food. People thinking they can steal cars off car lots to drive to safety. It was a lot of chaos. And the children, they were in the midst of it. And we have a tendency of grabbing adults and putting them in therapy and, you know, wanting to provide counseling. And we don't say, well, when mama saw the dead bodies, her four kids saw the same dead bodies. Hmm. And when Mama was running with her kids to duck the gunfire. The kids was running in the midst of the gunfire too. And when, when, when daddy was out in the midst of it all, trying to keep us safe, they saw how vulnerable he was and how his hands were tied as well. It was a helpless situation and children looked to adults to help them. and. The adult's hands was tied. So they were subjected to seeing and hearing, experiencing violence and destruction like on 10. And so now they 20. Mm-hmm. You know, they 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 25. Right. They 15. Mm. They 15. And we saying, dang, they, these little 14, 15, they ain't nothing nice. They breaking in cars. They doing this. They, yeah, they baptized in Katrina water. Mm. For real. You know, so uh, I get mad when the, when the kids misbehave and when they get out of character. But I have to remind myself that they were taken out of character 15 years ago. And they were put in a position that was beyond their control. And we don't communicate as a people the way we used to and as often as we should. So we have generations suffering in silence and then eventually lashing out. But I feel like uh, 85% of New Orleans suffer from post-traumatic stress. Mm. I feel like that. I feel like the people are just so strong and so beautiful. We have a tendency to just sweep over things and keep it moving. Mm -hmm. But when you get down to the get down of it, Mm -hmm. our people, including myself, you know, we are suffering from post-traumatic stress Mm -hmm. uh, in New Orleans. I believe the entire Gulf Coast Mm -hmm. is suffering. but but the people in New Orleans have a tendency of being uh, strong and opinionated and uh, proud. And sometimes people, you know, they try to teach you a lesson. So I think a lot of times my people suffer because they want to teach us a lesson. But that's a lesson we're not going to learn. We're going to keep talking. <laughs> we're going to stay strong. going to keep an opinion. 
we are going to fight for this land that so many of our ancestors uh, built homes on. You know, people in New Orleans, we've been here. Like, we've been, been, been here. And we, we love this place. But um, we were targeted. Talk about that. And I know when we've gone out before, you know, we've actually been in New Orleans and we've done the annual uh, commemoration. We've also gone out to different cities like Newport News or Norfolk or wherever we got to go. You always have a, there's something about that's so wise about you. There's just a wisdom that when you talk, you talk as though you want to warn somebody, like you, you've been through something, like almost like when you've gone through a trauma, you like, you want to warn somebody, don't go down that road. So we know that part of this is climate justice, right? We know that the storm is connected with the issue of climate change. We also know you mentioned that after the storm hits, there's also the issue of racial justice, economic justice. About, about those things, that then people come in waiting, almost waiting for when you're vulnerable, waiting for when you're at your weakest point to come in and say, okay, now you're at the path of least resistance. And you went out to different places to warn them about that. I guess as things get crazier, as we now see, we do see more flooding. We, we now, there's, there's wildfires. We now see tornadoes. We see things are getting this crazier and crazier, um, particularly for Black people and Indigenous people and people of color. What would be your warning point to them about taking this situation seriously? Well, uh, make sure that you are up to date on your property taxes. That's uh, fact. That's real. That's real talk. That's real Make sure your family members are up to date on the property taxes. Mm -hmm. um, make sure you have some documentation to prove that your people own the land that you all have been probably living on 50, 60, 70, and like in New Orleans, in some cases, 100 years, people, families have been in the same house because. If your neighborhood is destroyed for some reason and your business is not in order, they're going to take your stuff. They're going to take Big Mama House. They're going to take what Papa worked for. They're going to take that stuff. And you're not going to recognize your neighborhood anymore. Not because it's going to be fancy and dolled up, but the people that put the spirit in the community will no longer be there because they won't be able to afford to live there. So many people in New Orleans cannot afford to live where their people was for hundreds of years. So take care of your business so they don't take your lifeline, your tree, you know, where your family put roots down and build, and everybody remember growing up in this particular house, uh, eating food in this particular house, going to visit at this particular house, that house will be gone because mm -hmm. most of the neighborhoods, what I'm learning, most of the neighborhoods that uh, is supposed to be the hood, they are in the best proximity 
of everywhere, getting everywhere, especially when it comes to getting to the money. That's what I'm seeing. Like the hood is literally 10 minutes from where everything you need to be at is at. So if you're not taking care of your business, they take your houses. Then the money people are now 10 minutes away from getting to their money. Your people will be pushed out. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that is what happened uh, in New Orleans. So take care of your business. And not only take care of your business, you know, we have to get back to taking care of our communities because I can remember whenever the street lights came on and, you know, you had to come inside. But all of the ladies would come outside with buckets of hot water. Mm-hmm. and start scrubbing the porch and the sidewalk down. And so the sidewalk, the porch in front of everybody's house was always clean. And as children, it didn't cross our mind to drop a potato chip bag like down in front of somebody's door because that was a whipping. <laughs> you know, we um we picked up and, and everybody took pride in where they live. And, you know, now the kids are obsessed with uh, having their homes look like the homes they see on reality TV. Well, it starts with being neat. Hmm. It starts with being neat. That's, that's real. Pick up, pick up in your community. Don't let nobody mess your communities up. Hmm. Because the people that worked hard to establish these communities for us, our great greats, they were proud of those houses and proud of the way they looked. And so, you know, I want us to care more about our surroundings. You know, if you have, if your surroundings is clean, your air is a little cleaner. And mm-hmm. right now with this COVID, it's all about the clean air. No, it's all about the well, it's all about the cleaning. Well, that's a whole other. I mean, you know, they they call, you know, they they call our state Cancer Alley, though. Yeah. You know, who polluting? Look, polluting, and we live the Cancer Alley, especially between uh, New Orleans and Baton Rouge. That's just a stretch of so many plants. Yeah. So if you purchase land, not knowing that a plant was going to go up, and then mm-hmm. the plant went up, you know, nine times out of ten the people in the neighborhood are going to suffer some type of ailment as a result, you know, of being so close to all of these chemicals. And um, I mean, it's not the people's fault, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not the people's fault. We don't want to get sick, but it happens, you know, when you live in certain areas and, and, and it's beyond your control, but the things that are in our control, you know, the little things that we could do as far as keeping our personal spaces and environments and neighborhoods cleaner, we have to make an effort to do that. Especially black black people neat. So I don't even understand. Like black people is neat. That's what I do. What? Look, come on now. Look, come on now. I wanna come on now. Ain't no way in the world you Look, I lived in a project and everything. Black people need. Facts. Look, you got to clean them corners. You don't just sweep the floor. You got to catch them corners. So 
I mean, you know, that's how we are. We proud. We have these cool closets where, you know, everything <laughs> is lined up neat. And so same thing as outside, you know, let's just, let's just keep that same energy because we need, we oh, need. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I want to get to, there's two things. I, I know the people are probably are glued right now. Every word you saying, I'm glued. But, and I want to get to make sure the cooking and the culture. But before that, let me actually, I want to, one more thing on this before I get to that. I know they, and I know they want to hear all about those two things as well. Right now, we, we went to the Hampton Roads area a while back. And you warned them. And I bring this up because in Norfolk, Virginia, um, Norfolk, the city is sinking. And they just like, New Orleans, they, they, they are below sea level. And they actually say if a category one hit Norfolk, it'll have the same destruction that were, how Katrina hit, hit, hit us back 15 years ago. So I, so I want to say that, but now I want to ask you your, just your thoughts on this. That storm hasn't hit. And so they've been, you know, they've been preparing you know, getting ready for it. But there is an area that's named St. Paul's. It's like, and it's actually, it's, it's actually for them, it's called Seventh Ward. <laughs> it's <laughs> actually their Seventh Ward in Norfolk. And they literally are there. What they're doing now, because it's mostly housing projects, is that they are now moving the people out of the housing projects under the threat of a climate disaster. In other words, they're not moving them to help build back. They they use that now to get that prime property. So when you hear now that people are using these things to move people out of their communities, what's your thoughts on that? It reminds me of uh, pre-Katrina. Uh, I remember they took the people out of the St. Thomas project and put them in the St. Bernard project. St. Thomas was uptown. St. Bernard is in Seven Ward. I remember people being relocated years before Katrina. But it goes back to what I said. When you think about the hood, I'm talking about the hood, the proximity to everything, the hood is the heartbeat of it all. Like to get anywhere, if you in the hood, you in the best position to make it to the Super Bowl on time, <laughs> all-star, any concert, because the hood is like here and then everything else is just right there. And so when you have developers come in and they look at it and the money starts to clicking in their head, they're like, well, maybe we can move the people on the outskirts and offer them like a home or a community setting. Maybe they'll go for that. And we can take this. Sometimes the people fall for it because sometimes the people want to be on the outskirts because they've never lived there. Other times the people don't want to go, but they don't have a choice. Pay your property taxes. Take care of your business. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying because it's going to come down to the business of it all. That's what it's going to come down to. You know, it's going to come down to the business of it all. And if 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 you don't have your stuff in order, you're going to have to go, unfortunately. But try to take care of your business so you can have a fighting chance because the hood is prime real estate. 
best place to be. Usually it's the highest ground, safest ground. You know, the foundations are strong. Houses in the hood, been through everything, don't go nowhere. So um, we have to look at it all from a business perspective because when they're looking at it, they're not looking at us as people. It's just business. So when you find out how somebody feel and how they rolling, long as you know that, you know how to take, you can take care of yourself because you see how they coming. And um, Katrina has shown everybody that <laughs> they could come some gangster ways and you have to be ready or you will be out, you know. Mm-hmm. You will be out. A lot of people love where they live now. They they moved and they met new people. But there's a longing in everybody from New Orleans to just come back and be here. And it's because, you know, it's like you were forcibly removed due to this happening. You 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 didn't leave because this was a plan. You had to go. So anybody else before you're in a position where you have to go and can't come back. Take care of your business. No, that's that's real. Well, I, I thank you for that. I want to get to some of your your, your other stuff. You're doing. I know people probably know that you are a phenomenal cook. You are, and you know something, and I say that, you know, I got to taste the cooking. You know, I'm from down south, so I got to taste it. But what I've seen, you make it look so good. I don't, I hate this. I know it, I know it's good. What I see on the Instagram and what I just see, I know it's, but you do. So talk about why that's important to you, what it is about. I know you got like, you know, you talk about the books and all that stuff with that process, but also about how you were giving food to the elderly during COVID. Like you, you just wasn't, I mean, everything you do, I mean, it's such amazing, but talk about first about the cooking and then how you were, what cooking means to us from down South. I was a part of our spirit. In our culture, but also then how you were using that for the elderly doing coke. Um, so 11 years ago, I started a cooking squad called Team Whip Them Pots to inspire people to cook. The only thing I wanted them to do was cook every day because it's healthier, it's cheaper. You know, you can bond with the kids and the family. So I started the cooking squad. Well, um, since then, I wrote a cookbook about my memories with my grandmother and shared our family recipes. And, she says some really profound, naughty things, but <laughs> um, and then because my grandmother had uh, cancer, diabetes, and uh, heart problems, my grandfather had cancer and high blood pressure. Um, I'm a uterine cancer survivor. Um, I was 200 pounds at no limit, and I am just at five five, and. Uh, that weight gave me type two diabetes. So taking care of my grandmother and grandfather and myself, I was trying to be creative and keeping food really good, but healthier. Um, so I would mix seasonings and spices for my grandparents while they lived with me. And I just kept doing it and kept doing it. Well, now in 2020, I decided to bottle it and I have my, yes, <laughs> I have my fall whatever seasoning. So the thing about the seasoning is it only has two tablespoons of pink Himalayan salt in it. And I wanted to make a low sodium, really tasty seasoning blend that you could add to everything. 
And it also sparked me to um, package my rices. Everybody loves my, I have, look, I make, this is my good old dirty rice. Oh and, man, I'm gonna be a, a on the line customer. You know that. <laughs> and then, I'm tell you right, 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 right now, this is my fire jambalaya. Mm-hmm. Now mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. is my wild yellow rice. Now I'm gonna tell you about the wild yellow rice. So tell about everything. I wonder about everything. The wild yellow rice has uh turmeric in it. It also mm. has red rice, black rice brown rice and parboiled rice so what mm. i decided to do with my rice dishes is try to add so hold on, hold on, hold on. what i gotta do i think i put in some hot water all you got to do is put it in two cups of water come that's on, it come on yes and so i even made a tasty brown rice and i added cinnamon and nutmeg to it to give it some anti-inflammatory properties come what on. i've been doing with the rice dishes is adding some flavors to improve them from a healthy perspective but also to enhance the flavors you know and so let's do a lot of oil and butter yeah i know y'all wait y'all say oil i try to say that but i can't so <laughs> I just tried to think of ways. I mean, we practically live in Cancer Alley and New Orleans is like a, a diabetes capital, but we love rice. And I remember my mm-hmm. grandmother telling me that they ate so much rice because she was born during the depression and in the soup lines, they would always run out of food. as she would say, uh, when they got time to serve the colors. Uh, they would always run out of food. And so they had to get it how they live. And so she was like, so, you know, we eat crawfish and we eat kawan and different things that's wild to the world because we had to survive. And one of the ways we survived was with rice because you was able to stretch it. And my grandmother came from a family of 12 children. And so you had to stretch the rice. So when I was thinking about packaging uh, my rice dishes that, you know, people have loved over the years, I thought about rice being a product that can stretch in households, especially households with families where they have more than three children. Um, Mm -hmm. And then making it tasty and making it healthier. I just feel that during this time, because we are in some strange times, um, we have to take care of each other and do things that will uh, help each other. So, I mean, hey, I'm doing this rice. One bag of rice will feed a family of four. Um, you can cook this with your children. Or, or one. Yeah. So, and then the good thing about it is this. If it's just, if you are a family of one, you can take three-fourths cup out and make yours and <laughs> seal it back up and have some for later, baby. <laughs> ain't, no, ain't no sealing up. Ain't no later. <laughs> That's going to be, I love it. I love it. And, I, you know, and, and it's so important because you're right. Um, People don't know. One, you mentioned about our, our grandparents. When I was born, I was born in Shreveport, and the hospital I was born in had a colored section. And I don't know if it was an intentional colored section, mm. it was or not intentional colored section, but it was a colored section. And I don't think people understand. So this ain't no long off to like the way back. No, the it's day. really not. It's, 
It's, it's, it's, it's really not. You know, my I worked really hard, and I think that's what black black people do. Black couples, we work really hard so that our children don't have to experience the hardships or the name callings. And my children, they did not experience that. But I tell my children, well, you know, mama, I, I was called a nigga. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I experienced racism in the hospital. I'll never forget when I was six years old. I will never, ever forget that as long as I live because I had never been called like a nigga. And even though we had... um an Italian family that lived in our block. We we were family with them. Um, mm-hmm. every, every person that lived in the Seventh Ward, you know, we had Italians, we had Jews, Irish people, we had Creole Passon Blancs, and we had Black Power Creoles. We had all kinds of people, and we really did get along with each other. So I experienced uh, racism when, when I was in at the eye, ear, nose, and throat hospital as a child, and that blew me away. And I never wanted anybody to feel what I felt that day. So I think a lot of times, you know, we, we work really hard, Black, young Black people, middle-aged Black people. We work really hard to make it easier for our children. Our right. children, since they haven't experienced Racism on the levels that we had, the children were able to become friends. I always say that that's uh, thanks to hip hop. Felt like hip hop blurred a lot of color lines because um, an artist has to be dope. You you have to be a dope break dancer. You have to be a dope graffiti artist. You have to be a dope rapper. If you dope, we've let you in. So you have mm-hmm. black children and. All these other children dancing to the same beat, singing the same records, going to the same concerts, going to school together, living in neighborhoods together. They start dating. They start having children. Um, right now, a lot of racist grandfathers and grandmothers are probably red as a tomato <laughs> with anger because the children that was born the last of the 80s, 80s babies, the ones coming from 86 to like 98. Well, they got the opportunity to meet all kinds of people, right. all kinds of people. And so you see these young people out there protesting all colors because, you know, they were smart enough to get to know each other when their parents put them in a position to be around each other. You know, right, right now, uh, I'm proud of young people. Even in the midst of, you know, there's been a lot of crazy violence and stuff that I don't even understand that's going on. But in the midst of that, end game, I'm so proud of the young people. They are so fearless. They are so strong. All they have to do is keep learning and they're going to be unstoppable. Like, I'm so proud of them. I am so proud of them. You know, and I'm so proud of uh, my own children to say, well, I had a part in that fearless generation, (laughs) that smart generation, the generation that is not going to bow. They're not going to bow. They tired and they sick and tired for us. (laughs) I think so. You know, 
it's just a beautiful thing. And it's a beautiful thing to see so many different young people empathize with what has been happening to Black people because, you know, our generation, we met a lot of good friends along the way, but the empathy wasn't totally there. You know, I always say, you know, you love our rhythm, but don't even want to talk about our blues. See, we've we've Mm -hmm. had that type of stuff happen within our generations, whereas with the younger people, they are willing to talk. They're willing to listen. They're willing to debate. You know, our generation, we had a lot of things swept under the rug. So when it comes to the forefront now, it's this big, ugly monster because where people didn't want to discuss things, we just let it be. Young people not like mm-hmm. that. They're mm-hmm. not like that. And I, I really, really um, admire that about them. I admire that they are giving the opportunity to be human beings a chance. Because that didn't happen, you know, with our parents and with us, you know, blacks, you good enough to whatever, whatever. And that was whatever. But the younger people are not like that. And I'm really, you know, I'm loving it. I'm I'm praying for them. Whatever beefs they have between each other. I wish that they can settle those beefs, you know, because um, it's been devastating as a, a, a mother watching friends, you know, bury children or visit children yep. in prison. It's, it's, it's been very hard. And so I'm, I'm rooting for the kids to, you know, put their differences aside with whatever this is going on. It's, it's like, it'd be crazy gunfire in New Orleans, crazy gunfire in Chicago, crazy gunfire in Atlanta. We got to do something about that. Yeah. No, that's real. No. Ooh, man, you saying that, man, that's why I, t- I knew you was going to tear this up. Boy, I tell you, man, you saying so much here. So it's about no limit. Uh, and uh, I think people definitely want to hear about that. And folks who don't know, you were the first woman to be signed um, uh, to No Limit by No Limit by uh, with Master P. And, you know, you became, you know, one of the, the pioneers for us in, in hip hop, one of our women pioneers. In, the, in this culture. Um, and it's a story, it's a lot of stories there, but now I know that you back, I know that y'all back now doing some more reunioning um, <laughs> and out there doing some stuff. So, and then it's up with on BET. Uh, so talk about No Limit, just, just your thoughts on that. And then I want to ask you about, you know, obviously, you know, today's, uh, you know, female artists. Well, I had a record out in 1992 and it, got me some regional success. And C. Murder would always come to the record store that I worked in, but he was familiar with the record. The record played on the radio so much and always was doing concerts. So um, I guess when the No Limit that uh, Master P put together in California, I guess that really wasn't working for him. So he decided to start coming home, you know, back and forth. So my coworkers told him about me and I met him. Um, at the time, I had a deal on the table that uh, we, w- we were considering. But Percy said, uh, I'm going to have the biggest label in the world. I'm telling you, might not be nothing now, but I'm telling you. I could see, you know, God gave women this gift of intuition. I could see that hustle in his eyes. It was something that I knew he's telling the truth. Like it was just so I was like, he is telling the truth. And I wanted to be part of building something and making it 
what it was supposed to be because hip hop was my life. So um, when I got to California, I didn't really, you know, that sound wasn't my sound. The, the, the sound that they had uh, coming from Richmond, that wasn't a sound that I was looking for to be creative and write like tons of records. And so I told Percy, I said, you know, you and your guys, y'all cool for what y'all doing in California. I'm not from California. And, um, and I, you know, the slang, the music, all this is not me. And I'm definitely not going to come from New Orleans and start rapping with y'all. And people just think I'm from California or they think that, you know, I totally forgot where I came from. I'm really not feeling this. I need a Southern vibe. And I want Southern artists to rap with me because I want the world to see how talented Southern artists are. So I went to New Orleans. And I had to do a record with Cain and Abel. They was double vision at the time. And um, mm-hmm. this guy, Carlos, he did the beat. So I linked P with Cain and Abel and Carlos. And then KLC came back to California with us because he had came when we initially went, but then he went back home. And so then he came back with us. And then we ended up coming home for good. And so I brought Mac and Fiend and Odell to the production team. And um, KL brought Soldier Slim. And um, we began to form the sound that I wanted. Um, And I'm glad that Master P trusted me to take him completely out of his comfort zone from doing the music that he had been doing and making him do what I wanted him to do. And that was the sound that gave us the sound people loved. Um, I'm thankful for that because he trusted that I knew what I was talking about when I said what we needed to do, how we needed to sound. I'm thankful that he trusted me in that because from that you got the birth of Bout It, Bout It, and then an entire sound that uh, that defined an era. So I'm 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 glad for that. But uh, yeah, and so now we um we started touring before COVID. The best thing about it is. The people like we get an opportunity, you know, after 20 years to see people who tattooed TRU on their neck, on their arm, on their belly, on their back, and ladylike tattoos. And we get to see these people. And now, you know, we like 59, everybody like showing <laughs> shiny tattoos and bringing their children who are now 25 and 30, bringing them to our concert, we are seeing generations of uh, No Limit fans. So for me, the very best, best, best part of touring is uh, seeing the fans, connecting with them, getting to take pictures with them and letting them remind of us. You remember when y'all came in 1997 and you had this jersey on and your hair like this? Uh, you know, just catching up with them. It's been, a, it's been beautiful. And I can't wait until things are open up again so we can get back on tour and reconnect with them people. No, that's amazing. I got to tell you, as somebody growing up in hip hop, um, it was, you know, obviously I'm, and I wasn't an artist and wasn't a poet. So I didn't know how I would be in the hip hop lane. Um, but I remember getting the source magazine and seeing those no limit, uh, um, full page advertisements. And it was just different. And I remember seeing Mia X and, and all the whole crew. 
And I was like, man, what in the world? It was just like, it just looked different. Like, what in the world is this? It was just, different. It was just something else. And I, and I, and I, and I'll say this, you know, um, I guess maybe it's probably, probably been about 10 years now, but 10 years ago, the source had me on their, uh, power therapy and they, and they, and they had there and I, and I, uh, I thought back and I, and I said, man, you know, they don't have those, those ads now, but I wish when I was in the power, when they had, when I was in the power 30, when they, we would have had, cause that, I mean, that was just something. And I, and I look back at the culture, I think about me, man, I'm just so Southern political reverend. And I, and I somehow got here, but it really was from looking at, you know, people like you. So I just thank you. I mean, I don't think y'all know how much, you know, the impact y'all had um, for folks who are from the South. Um, it gave folks a different, just perspective of what they could do. Right. I mean, I know for me, I never would have thought being from the South, I'd be in the source, you know, the source power 30. But as, as, as a, as a reverend, you know, you know, activist, right. I never would have thought, you know, but that's how our culture works because the South, as you mentioned, with Master P and with Nia X and all y'all, y'all gave us something to think about and dream about. Like y'all gave us something to, to envision that you didn't have to be from either the East Coast or the West Coast. But you know what? Um, Luke and Jay Prince, I think they gave that to us because. Um, mm. The problem with the South was there was always ownership and always independence and always the owners of the land, but it wasn't put in the forefront. When um, I think No Limit got the opportunity to be uh, Luke, Skywalker Records, and, 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 and Rap A Lot, I think we got to be that 2.5 because... 3.0. Because the um we took the ownership to the next level, but those record labels had already established like how you should do it. And and we just followed through, but we were a younger generation. You know, each the each year, each generation is more fearless and, and more of a daredevil. So you know, we had the heart to really just come and say, well, not only will it be ownership, it will be 80-20 and we will control our marketing. We will control the way people see us. We're going to control that. We're going to take a full page out on the source. We want a whole bus. We want a billboard. You know, you just kicked it up a notch. By kicking it up a notch, it made way for cash money to come. And continue, you know, just that whole reign that the South had and solidifying who the South is as far as like a hip hop juggernaut. The South is definitely, definitely, you know, a force to be uh, reckoned with. There's something, there's something to, but it's something also, I mean, it's something that I have memories from that. You don't understand. I was playing college basketball and I never been, I never began, you know, when you playing college basketball and I was, and I was short, you know, when you, when you, you know, you got the guys on my team, most guys like six, seven, six, eight, six, nine. When you five, <laughs> nine, five, ten, you got a little added, you got a little swagger because you playing basketball, you know, so you got a little Napoleon complex going on and you walking around 
And I never, I went to the dance hall, you know, back in the day, them days, just I'm gonna date myself, y'all who watching. You should go to the ballroom. And so, you know, you cloud come in there and they put on, man, they put on some no limit. And you're right. They put on, man, some of that loop, you know, down for that, you know, you know, they put on and we lost our minds. I never get all my coolness. Like, I was my coolness. I was, I was a man getting it with everybody else. I was dancing, <laughs> enjoying yourself. All my That's cool, right. being cool on the wall. Man, I lost my mind. Too. I was in the middle of the day. It was just something. But we, you know, you brought yeah, excitement, sports, no limit. Music um, went hand in hand with sports. I met so many athletes who told me, "Yeah, I work out to unladylike." I work out to Mama Drama, yeah. you know, and so yes, uh, then we met a lot of sorority sisters, fraternity brothers who said they stepped to the music and, you know, so uh, it really was a great time and, and I enjoy being on the stage um, now, you know, reliving those moments for people okay. because um, it's just so fun to see them. They sing in every word and you can tell they reliving that time, because when I'm out there, I'm reliving it. You can't tell me I am not 26, 27 years old when <laughs> I'm on the stage. <laughs> oh, man. So so what's your thoughts? So then moving fast forward to today, obviously, what are your thoughts on hip-hop and women artists today? Um, obviously, I just tell you, you know, I, we, we love, so this is not about, we, we love all hip-hop. So I know that it's not a, if, not a question of generation. For me, it's, it's just about all hip-hop. But what's your, right now, with, with Cardi B, Megan Stallion, obviously they have well, a song out. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah, well, You see, uh, my first record was So Nasty. Came out in 92. I really don't have room. I don't talk about anybody. I teach <laughs> and with my students. Um, some of them were born in 2000. <laughs> Some in 2003. I don't tell them mm. what to rap about, what to write about. I don't get into the, uh, I don't get into he their headspace. What I do know is uh, there's inspiration behind every record. And my record, The Payback, was eight minutes and it was so nasty. Oh my goodness. They used to call the radio station. I had to make a radio version for the radio version. That's how nasty it was. So I, I'm not I'm I'm not I'm not the grandma that judges. You know, I haven't um I haven't became so goody two shoes to the point where I'm just shaking my finger at everybody. Um so I wasn't I wasn't offended by the record, but I will say this I was Mia X against the rapper. And when my children were really young, I controlled what they heard. Um I controlled what they heard and um I didn't really limit the stuff they listened to per se, because if they happen to listen to something that I was playing or my mom was playing because my mama was a hip hop head, uh, we explained records to them, circumstances, situations. I did to my kids what my mom did to me because my mom used to love Millie Jackson and um, Millie Jackson used to curse in her records a lot. And I liked Millie Jackson's voice, and I loved the fact that she cursed. So I used to try to sit behind a door to listen to some of the Millie Jackson words. And then my mom, she was like, come here. She's trying to listen behind that door. You don't even know what she's saying. 
what's she saying? And my mom went to explain it to me about this record that Millie Jackson made. And Millie Jackson is the reason when I started rapping, I added cuss words. She had a rap call. I had to say it. And um, it, it just made me start cussing. But I said all that to say this. Parents, you know, there are so much, there's so much material out here. And some of the material may trouble you in terms of if you, if you hear your kids listening to it or watching something. So it's important to keep it real with them. If you hear a record and you think the record is too much for your baby, but your baby's probably going to listen to it, at least break it down for them. Always give your children the option to say, well, they saying do this on a record, but I ain't going to do it because my mom and my brother didn't told me. You know, when, when my kids was coming up. But me, as a parent, how do you break down what to your children? Let me tell you something. You got to break it down. You got to tell them the truth. Look, Cardi and, and Megan have this record out WAP. And they talking about they private. They talking about <laughs> these men that, well, Cardi has a husband. And so... There are certain things she does with her WAP with for her husband. Sooner or later, Megan is going to have a husband. She's going to show him why she has a WAP. <laughs> but if you my little girl, don't you give no little boy your WAP until he marry you. I mean, there's ways you can explain. But we, we oh, as parents man. have to stop wanting to... Uh, you know, indulge in front of the kids because I see a lot of stuff going on, you know, right in front of the kids, the bathroom poses and the drawers and the little children be right in the, in the little, you know, photo bombing. There are certain things that we have to do, you know, as parents, we have to really guardian, what's, be the guardians of what's going on. And if they happen to see or hear something, you just have to be prepared to explain it to them. Now, my grandbaby, let me tell you, all she listened to is the kids' bop. So she mm. don't really know uh, the real words. And she think kids' bop is everything. She be doing the little routines and singing the records. They didn't remix the records. But um, when she's in a car with her dad, I'm probably sure she hear all the records exactly the way they go. Now, if she's ever... Uh, Curious about any of them records, Mama and Mia will tell her about them all. You know, I will tell her about them all. I just think we have to be honest with kids. We just have to, instead of, you know, the whole sheltering thing, we need more conversations. And um, so I'm I'm not mad at Megan and Cardi. That's a grown-up song. No children need to be listening to that song. That's a that's a grown, grown song. <laughs> so I mean. I, I don't tell people how to rap. I didn't want nobody to tell me how to rap. And I had a filthy mouth. I'm just thankful that, you know, as I continue to pick up my pen, I read more. Um, I had conversations with older people who gave me the game and they were able to shape my lyrics. So um, I think is everybody, you know, we have room for growth. I think um, what we're hearing from the ladies now, you're probably going to hear more mature stuff in the next few years as they grow. Um, sometimes we make records and we be like, oh, I did I make that record. And sometimes we make the records and we like, I made it. And for the next 30 years, <laughs> y'all going to talk about y'all waps and everything else. I mean, 
It's, I don't know. I, people look for me to bring the chaos and the mess and the drama. That's just not me. I'm just going to keep it real. And I, I'm, I'm not mad at them for the record. Listen, I can quote some records and you know from our time. You remember the record, oh, mm-hmm. you need the D in your life. And you need some D. And, you, mm-hmm. and we would be in a club pointing at each other about needing some D in our life. You know, and say red and say black and what they could do you from the back and so we have we have sang a lot of records by guys and girls. Now, now let's be let's be clear. I never said I don't know D no D no, in my you, life. To be no, clear, y'all no, had a- listen. I'm saying the guys used to be pointing <laughs> at the girls. <laughs> And the girls okay, used to be yeah, pointing at each yeah, other. Let's be clear. What the point was? The point. But you know what I'm saying. We um, <laughs> then they had another record. I would. I used to do these club nights in Dallas during Katrina. You know, and I remember they had a record, and the guys would be saying they thinking with their D. They thinking with mm. they, and they saying they dumb. I'm just thinking with my, and they going around much. Dumb. And so, hey, if you could think with no, your D and you need real. D in your life, you can talk about your WAP. <laughs> that's facts. Oh, man. <laughs> I love the yeah, girls, though. I love, I love the ladies that's out. The difference is this. You know, when I was out and Eve was out and Rage was out and Yo-Yo mm-hmm. and Kim and Foxy, you know, the Ghetto Twins, Gangsta Boo, Trina, everybody kind of, everybody looked different and we all had a different sound. And even if the subject matter was kind of the same, our approach was so different. Right now in hip hop, the only thing from the girls and the guys, I, I hear like the same flow and I see the same aesthetic. You know, like Rage had Afro puffs. I had a roller set or a ponytail. Yo-Yo had individuals. Lauren had locks. Eve had a little natural. You know, Kim and Foxy did anything they wanted from wigs to weaves. It was so many different looks, so many different flows, so many different body types. It was me and Rage and Eve. We looked how we looked. And Kim and Foxy, Queenpin, they looked how they looked. It was such a variety. I think right now the industry puts pressure on the girls to have a particular aesthetic. That's not fair. That's not fair. You know, they want them to have a particular look, a particular sound. I don't think it's fair with how they're uh, marketing the ladies because I know they have a lot to offer. and We all come from so many different places. And that's what I would say, uh, the difference between the artists in the 90s and now, you know, aesthetically, we was different. We sound different. We had different styles. Lauren stood on who she was. Mia X stood on who she was. Ray stood on who she was. Kim stood on who she was. It was just a variety. And so the fans had an opportunity to buy everybody. Now, it seems like the aesthetic is the same. It makes the consumer feel like they only have to like one when you really can like them all. So that's what I would say the difference is, you know? No, that's real. Man, thank you for that. Thank Thank you. you. Man, so I've been talking with the phenomenal Mama Mia, the first lady of New Orleans hip hop, Mia Young, better known by her stage name, Mia X is an artist, an author, an actress, a chef, and professor of music. She has been called the mother of Southern gangster rap and was the first female MC to get a contract with the label No Limit Records. 
Nia, if folks want to find you, where can they? So on Instagram, I am the mama, M-A-M-A, the mama Mia X. Uh, on Twitter, I'm the real Mia X. I'm Mia X on Facebook. Um, and I have my website, Team Whip Them Pots, D-E-M, Team Whip Them Pots.com. And um, if you see me at a show, or you see me walking around the city, you catch me in a grocery store with my bonnet on, tell me, hey, baby, so I can say it back. <laughs> oh, man. Mia, I love you, my sister. I love you, too, I my brother. so much, man. And I just can't wait to get that rice. Well, I can't wait to get no. that rice. <laughs> I want to see you cook it. You have to, for oh, the you team, wanna, you got a video. Okay, I, I'll, I'll cook it. I mean, I do your rice milk good. But I'll definitely cook it. You got to cook oh. it. Yes, yes. The, yes, you got to put the hip-hop caucus in the kitchen. Well, I, I'll definitely, definitely going to try. Man, look, I love you. Stay safe. And, yeah. um, and you know, we, we in this to the end. That's right. We in this, we in this to the That's end. That's right. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100% which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people.